You're listening to a sermon from New City Fellowship in Manassas, Virginia. New City Fellowship is a diverse community that proclaims the gospel and makes disciples for the glory of God and the renewal of our city. For more information, visit newcityfellowship.net. So um, this morning we're going to be spending some time in um, the book of Acts. We're going to continue after two weeks of a break with our series in the book of Acts. So if you are able, please open your Bibles in Acts chapter 5. And we're going to be in verses 33 to 42. So um, please uh, join me. And before I read the text... I just want to provide a little bit of context of what has been happening so that we can understand where the story takes us this morning. So if you've been here, you will remember that the last time we had a sermon about Acts, the disciples were healing people to the point that people from other towns outside of Jerusalem were coming in. They were bringing the sick. There's a mention that people laid their their sick uh, on the streets so that when Peter passed by, even his shadow would pass over them. And so they're blessing the people inside of Jerusalem, the people outside of Jerusalem. The, the, the movement, the Christian movement is growing and they get arrested for doing this because they're preaching a name that the high priest and everyone uh, the, in the leadership of Israel did not, didn't like. So they were put in jail again. This is the second time they, put, they get put in jail unjustly. And while they're in jail, this time it's not just Peter and John. Now it's all the apostles. This time an angel appears and delivers them. And the angel comes and tells them, go back to the temple and keep preaching. So the doors open, they walk out, and the soldiers come back in the morning to get them. And they're not in prison. So they're, they, they, they hear that somebody says, oh, they're in the temple. So they go to the temple. They find them again, preaching exactly what they were ordered not to preach. And they bring him back to the council. The council is called the Sanhedrin. And it's, it's just basically uh, uh, the leadership of Israel that um, executes all kinds of disputes. Or uh, let me just read you the, the definition that I found of what the council, which is called the Sanhedrin, is. According to the Lexham Bible Dictionary, this is the supreme council in charge of Jewish affairs in Roman Palestine. A group consistent of priests and religious teachers who meet to decide on legal matters with religious, political, and social ramifications. So this is where the apostles are brought, and um, this is where our story uh, begins. They start talking, and the high priest and everyone didn't like what they were saying. And today we start in chapter 5, verse 33, and it says this. When they heard this, They were enraged and wanted to kill them. Verse 34 says, But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theudas, or however you pronounce that, rose up, Claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. 
After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So, in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or, or, or this undertaking, undertaking is of man, you might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called him in, they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. The name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Dear God, I pray that your Holy Spirit will guide us this morning, open our hearts, open our minds, so that you would challenge us, comfort us, and shape us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. Let us honor you by learning from you. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. So today, uh, we're gonna, one of the benefits of, of slicing this text out is that we get to uh, take a little bit of a, a look at the speech of Gamaliel. And um, we, we're also going to take a look at the, the reaction of the apostles after the council was influenced by Gamaliel's speech. But before we start, I want to talk about who is Gamaliel and why is he important in this whole narrative. In fact, he is very important in the entire book of of Acts. Number one, Gamaliel was the Apostle Paul's teacher. If you have read the the book of Acts, you will realize that uh, later on, Paul tells us that he was actually a student uh, a Pharisee that studied under Gamaliel, and this is the first time that the book of Acts, the book of Acts, sort of introduces us to to Paul via his master. And one of the things that we learned about Gamaliel is that he was respected by everybody. You saw it. You read it. He stands up. He he speaks. Well, first of all, he orders them to take to be taken out, and then he speaks to the entire council, including the high priest, and they listen to him. And uh, 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 Paul was uh, his student. In Acts chapter 22, Paul himself says, after he's captured in Jerusalem, he uses this sort of in his defense. So Paul tells the, the people that arrested him when he went into Jerusalem later on. And he says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in the city, Jerusalem. Educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law. So that gives us another hint. Gamaliel, Gamaliel was respected because his teachings were very strict, which is typical of uh, the Pharisees. Paul says that he was zealous for God and people in, in that city knew. So this, this person, Gamaliel, is important He's also part of the Sanhedrin, the council, and he stands up and God uses him because he provides a truth that in a way describes the entire book of Acts. And in fact, I would say uh, what, what Gamaliel says describes how the gospel grew or has grown since the very beginning. And that truth is that if this is truly God's church, 
If the message that we carry is truly from God, then men will never be able to overthrow it. That's what Gamela is saying. He actually tells the, the whole Sanhedrin, watch what you're going to do with these people. And he says, leave them alone. If this is from God, they're going to prosper. And you will find yourself opposing God. But if this is not from God, this is not going to grow. Another way to look at Gamaliel's speech is saying that if anyone opposes this message or the church of God, that person is also opposing God himself. And this is very interesting to look at it this way, because if you kind of fast forward a little bit into the book of Acts, this is what happened to Paul. And we will eventually get to that point, maybe in two years at this, at this rate. Um, but... This is exactly what Paul says. He says uh, that he hears a voice and the voice tells him, why are you pursuing me? Why are you chasing me? Why are you after me? And it's God. And what Paul was doing is he was persecuting the church. So this describes, this, this words of the teacher of Paul describes exactly what happened to Paul. Uh, one of uh, the most zealous disciples of Gamaliel. Interesting enough, Gamaliel's teaching that in that moment was also not followed by Paul or back then Saul of Tarsus. Because Gamaliel says, keep away from these men. He says, leave them alone and they will either crumble or prosper if this is from God. And that is not what Paul did. But I would like to summarize his speech in one sentence that I believe God uses Gamaliel to teach us as well today. And what I want to argue is that God is sovereign over his church. I believe that Gamaliel's speech demonstrates that God's wisdom can come from all kinds of places. And at that very moment, Gamaliel was an enemy of the church. And God is using an enemy from his church to speak to his church and deliver his church. And that is proof that there's only one person in control of absolutely everything that happens with us and the church. And that is God. That God's wisdom, God's provision, God's help can come even from our own enemies. Even the very people who stand against what we're all about can sometimes be used by God to propel or catalyze or help the very thing that they're trying to stop. So, this person, a respected teacher, was used by God to help the cause of the gospel. And I would, I would like for us to consider that Gamaliel is absolutely right. God is in control over his church. God is the one who decides what happens to his church. God is the one who's spreading and building his own church through the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is exactly what Jesus told Peter. In Matthew 16, he tells Peter, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
So I want us to ponder for a moment on the words of Gamaliel and think and remember that even though we are one church, a local church, there is someone that's in control of what happens here. And it's not us. It's God. We have been through two years of a lot of difficulties. I was looking at the sermon calendar this this week, and I think this is my 60th something sermon. And I seriously can tell you, none of us could have anticipated that we were going to make it to this day and we were still going to be standing. That's the reality. If you if you uh, if you. um, Go back a few years and remember the time when Will stood up and said that he was living. We all felt, even myself, I was brand new. I was here for a month or so. And I remember like, well, I'm just closing the doors. That's literally what I I thought. And the reality is that this should help us understand that we are not our own. There is something that is working in us. It's not something, it's someone. It's God himself. That we cannot control, we cannot decide what happens with our local church or the church in general. Not even Satan or hell can prevail against it. Because if this church or any church is of God, nobody will be able to overthrow it. And if anyone is against the church of God, they will be found Opposing God. And we need to hear that often. As a church and individually. Is that we are not building God's church. There is only one person and it is Jesus. Jesus builds. Jesus controls. Jesus grows. Jesus is absolutely sovereign over his church. And if you think about it for a moment. This should bring us a lot of peace. And a lot of joy. Because it is not our strategy. Most of our meetings with the, with the, with the transition team, I was like, oh, I don't know if we're going to make it. I don't know if we're going to get to a solution. I don't know if we're all going to agree. But it is not our strategy. Even today, with the three elders that we have. None of us are experts in everything. We're just like looking at each other and praying and trying to come up with the best possible solutions. But it is clearly not us. And the reality is that even if you look at the most polished and well-run and large churches, they're doing the exact same thing we're doing. They just cover a little better. It is not our holiness. It is not our vision. It is not our mission. It is not our systems. It is God. It is Jesus himself who is building his church, not us. He is in charge of everything that happens with us, with his church, in Manassas, in Mexico, everywhere. And this is exactly what the message of Scripture is constantly saying us. Psalm 127 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, Those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. 
for he gives to his beloved sheep. God is the one who's doing everything in our church. And you can apply this to your own life. You can apply it to your own household. It is God. We serve a sovereign God. Most biblical scholars agree that Gamaliel's speech wasn't motivated by sympathy for the church at all. Everyone understands that he spoke because Gamaliel understood how God worked on this earth. And God works sovereignly. He is in charge. And Gamaliel gives us two examples of fake messiahs, Thudas and Judas. They both also made a lot of noise. They gathered some traction and, and gathered a crowd just for a moment, but it didn't last. They were fake messiahs. Interestingly enough, Judas, the Judas of Galilee, was the one that people thought was the closest to the Messiah that they wanted. So if you remember Jewish culture back then, one of the reasons why they didn't accept Jesus is because Jesus wasn't this political figure that was creating an uprising against the Romans. And that's one of the reasons why they didn't think he was the Messiah, because Jesus was a pacifist and Jesus was all nice and he hung out with the poor and he actually uh, made some of tax collectors his friends. And everybody's like, no, 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 this is not the Messiah that we're looking for. But Judas of Galilee was actually everything they, they wanted. Some people even think that he was the person that started, there's debate on this, uh, the, the, the sect or the group called the Zealots. So Judas of Galilee was more of the, uh, you know, trying to rebellious uh, soldier who wanted to overthrow Rome. He promoted the killing and the overthrowing of, of the Roman Empire or oppression. And he died and the movement dispersed. But Jesus's ministry, Jesus's way has prevailed for over 2,000 years and has spread everywhere in the world. God is in control over us. God is sovereign over his, over his church and Gamaliel is absolutely right. But we need to make sure we understand something. And this is the difference between the, the other movements and us. And this is the thing that continues to be, I believe, the crux, the, the essence of, of, of everything that the, the summary of Christianity is that we only preach Christ. We only preach the gospel. What made this cult, this movement different from others is that they were not a political movement. They were not a nonprofit. They were not a social movement only. They had a message. And if you caught it at, in the end of the, at the end of this section in verse 42, they said that they went back and every day in the temple from house to house, they did not cease to teach and preach that the Christ is Jesus. That is exactly what God is in control of, that message. And as a church, as much as we know that God is sovereign of his, over his church, if we lose that, if we lose that message, we cease to be the church. We could be great nonprofits. We could be great social movements. We could become political about everything and be a great source of political influence. 
But God is not sovereign over that. God is sovereign over the church. God is sovereign over everything. But what I'm trying to say is that he will not bless us the same way. He is moving this message forward. The message of salvation through Jesus Christ. The message of the gospel. And we need to watch that our message, everything we do, everything we're about is that Christ is Jesus. That salvation is only in Jesus. That is the message of the church. That is the message that God was moving forward back then. And that is the same message that God continues to move forward today. As a church, our allegiance, our focus is on the message of the gospel. And verbalizing it to people and demonstrating it to people. But that is who we are. That is what defines us. That is what makes us different from other religions. Is that we believe that Jesus came and died in our place. And only through him we can access heaven and reconciliation with the Father. Now let me just continue with this and uh, just make sure we understand that sometimes when we believe or we think that God is sovereign and, and we understand the sovereignty of God and that he's, he is truly in control of everything, we tend to believe that that only applies to the good things. We tend to believe that because God is sovereign and he's all powerful and he's controlling, then everything will go smoothly. But the reality is that God's power and God's goodness is shown in both the good and the sometimes bad things that happen to us. And this text makes this clear. On one hand, we see miracles, people being healed from diseases, God providing for people's needs, angels opening doors, and the book of Acts continues. And the more we, we uh, move forward into the book, we'll see more of these. But at the same time, in the same sovereignty of God and power, we see suffering and pain. We see the disciples being mocked. We see the, the disciples being arrested. They are put in prison. They are beaten. They are flogged. And as the book continues, it will continue to increase. We're about to jump into Stephen, the first Christian martyr, and he will be stoned to death. Yet, we continue to say God is in control. Yet, we continue to say that he is suffering over his church. In the good and in the bad. We are his church. We belong to him. Our lives belong to him. And we must accept not only the good, but also the bad and the painful and the difficult as well. The, the apostles are delivered because of Gamaliel's speech, but they're also beaten and threatened. It wasn't all roses for the, for the apostles back then. And they accepted both. Our message of salvation brings suffering with it. But it's exactly what Jesus did. He accepted not only the good, he also accepted the bad. I'm not saying it's easy, but he accepted it. In fact, Hebrews 12 says it in a, a frames it in a way that's interesting. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy, which seems to make no sense, that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. As Christians, we believe that everything that God sends our way will eventually turn into joy. 
And that's what I'm about to talk about. But I want us to understand just because God is sovereign, just because God loves us and he's in charge of our lives. It doesn't mean that everything is going to go well. No. But it is absolutely worth following Christ. I really want to encourage you if you have the opportunity. There is um, a book that I, I've been reading. It's a compilation of, of sermons from an archbishop in El Salvador in, during the, the Civil War of El Salvador. And the, the name of this person is Oscar, Oscar Romero. He was assassinated uh, because he was uh, trying to speak about loving even our enemies. And you will see what he's all about. But he makes a, a really interesting comment about suffering for the gospel that I want to share with you. And that I believe we need to understand. He says, those who in the biblical phrase would save their lives, that is, those who want to get along, who don't want commitments, who don't want to get into problems, they will lose their lives. What a terrible thing to have lived quite comfortably with no suffering, not getting involved in problems, quite tranquil, quite settled, with good connections politically, economically, socially, lacking nothing, having everything. To what good? They will lose their lives. Brothers and sisters, God's word calls us to join in the suffering today. Let me tell you, with all the conviction I can muster, it is worthwhile to be a Christian. And I would say absolutely amen to that. It is worthwhile to be a Christian, even if it means accepting suffering because of the name of Jesus. The name of the book is... um, the I probably should have wrote write that um, the violence of love, and if you are able to, I would highly recommend it. God is sovereign. We accept the good and we accept the bad. And my third point is that God's sovereignty, even in the midst of the good and the bad, produces rejoicing. Verse 41 says, Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And I've read this so many times, and I'm sure you've read it as well. And it seems to not make sense to rejoice in the midst of suffering. But we constantly see this. Not only in the, in the apostles, we, saw, we see it in Paul, we see it in Peter, we see it in different people throughout Scripture that they rejoice in the midst of suffering. And I believe that as Christians, the, the reason why we can rejoice in, in the midst of suffering and that stemming out of God's sovereignty is because we understand that in the end, in the real end, Everything will be all right. The apostles are beaten. Many times later they will be killed. And they continue to rejoice in the midst of pain. They are honored to be counted worthy of suffering for the name. For the name of Jesus. And this is one of the things that I struggle the most to understand. But not understand Biblically or theologically or doctrinally, I believe that I can say yes to that. But when it comes to actually put it in, in, in work or doing it, it's really, really hard. It's really, really hard. As humans, we don't like to suffer. And even less, we don't like to suffer if we're doing something right. Correct? 
If you're a father and you have made the mistake, which I have made many times, of spanking a child because somebody told you that they did something and then you realize that they didn't do that, they get triple angered. And they don't like it. And I feel like the, it doesn't make sense to me when it comes to application that the apostles were flogged and beaten and they still rejoiced in that. But Peter was there. And this is something that happened repeatedly to Peter. And Peter wrote a letter later down the road. And I want to read to you what Peter then later passed on to other people. This is Peter's recommendation to other believers that were also persecuted. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, Peter learned the lesson that he passed on to other believers. And he says the same, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings. That you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. I believe that the apostles and ourselves must understand something in order for us to be able to rejoice in the midst of suffering. And it's number one, the fact that God is in charge. He's sovereign. But number two is that in the end, and I want to say it again, in the real end, everything is going to be all right. Whatever you think the end is right now, it's not the end. This world is not the end. That thing that's going to happen is not the end. That bill that's looming over your head is not the end. Even if you die is not the end. That sickness is not the end. Whatever you think is happening to you right now, it's not the end. We are just sharing in Christ's sufferings so that one day we will rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed to us. What does that mean? Eternity. The day when we actually see God's glory, that day is going to be filled with real joy. So for us, everything that we're facing here is just a small affliction. That is exactly what Paul says to the, to the church in Corinthians. And in Spanish we say it, and I, I don't know if this is an English thing, but it's, el que ríe el último ríe mejor. Does that mean... That means in, in English would be he who laughs last, laughs best. I don't know if you guys use it enough here. We use it a lot. Usually not in a good way. But it's true. This is not our, 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 our last laugh. We're going to spend eternity laughing. We're going to spend eternity with just a rem like a small remembrance of Things. Just picture yourself 20 million years into eternity. And then you look back and you're like, remember we used to cry about, like, what was this thing? Remember when we thought we were going to be kicked? Like, it's just going to be a faint memory. And then we're going to fully, for real, rejoice in the real end. Which, by the way, it's not end because it never ends. But Paul says to the church in Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 4... This For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight 
of glory beyond all comparison. In Spanish, this says that this light momentary affliction is producing in us an eternal weight. And what this weight means is amount. These momentary afflictions that we are suffering is producing in us an amount of glory, eternal glory, that we can't even compare with anything. Verse 18 says, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And I want to pause the, the break for a moment here. Do we really believe that there are things that we cannot see yet that are more real than what we can see right now? Are we convinced that whatever we see right now, our houses, our work, our, our stuff, is this, this is not the real thing. This is just something that's passing. Are we conscious of that? Do we really believe it? Because many times I find myself believing it, but then not really believing it. Because every day we work with the things that we touch, with the things that we smell, with the things that we physically see. And we forget there is something else. And if we're believers, we have to maintain that tension between both. This is important, but this also that I can't see is also important. If we don't fully understand that, it's going to be hard for us to rejoice. Because our joy comes from things that we cannot see. But those are the real things. So we should have joy in those things that we can't see. And one of those things is that God is in control. That God is sovereign over everything. That he's working for our good. And the last thing I want to talk about is that Understanding that God is in control, understanding that God is over my life, that God controls everything around us, should move us to obedience. Verse 42, we already read it. Every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Before I believed in the sovereignty of God, I lived under a Christianity that acted and believed that everything was up, up to me. Every time I had an encounter with somebody and I preached the gospel to somebody, it was up to me to convert that person. In fact, we use the terminology of winning souls. I don't know if you've used that terminology before. And I was like at the end of uh, you know crusades or things that we used to do. Or, no, you don't call it crusades. You were call it you call it um, revivals. You used to all to get together and people would say like, "I want three souls for Christ," and I want and we would count and it was almost like a little bit of a competition. Um, your salvation, your sanctification, your holiness. If, if you were able to speak in tongues, it's because you were holier than other people, because you were not as pagan as those other kids in youth group. It was, it was literally a, a whole set of beliefs that everything was about me. And one of the things that I 
did not understand it initially, is that if God is really in control, if God is really sovereign, if God really chooses me and he already kind of sees and knows my path and, and he is truly sovereign, then, then I should just chill and relax and do nothing. That's, that was my initial reaction. But in reality, it produces the opposite. It produces, yes, a relaxation and a peace, but it also uh, produces the freedom to work with God because it no longer, belong, it no longer depends on you. The, the way I see it is that if we understand God's sovereignty really uh, and internalize it and understand it well, it's almost like when you are, as, as a father, this is how I see it. If, if I'm trying to do a project at home, and my kids see, see me doing something. They usually want to also either grab the drill or nail something. And, and, and I let them do it. And they, they have fun. And they want to join me. And the reason why they want to join me is because they know it's not up to them. They see it as fun. Right? The, I, was, I was in the attic the other day and I was putting some plywood on, 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 on the floor. And everybody wanted to be up there and everybody wanted to nail. And daddy, can I please? So I, they took turns and I, they were just nailing everywhere and they were having fun. I wasn't having fun. I was just trying to contain myself. I was like, okay, one more. That's it. That's it. Everybody leave me alone. Because I feel the weight of the thing, right? I'm making sure that everything is fine. I'm making sure that the weight is well balanced. I'm, I'm making sure of all these things. They are not concerned of any of that. They know daddy is going to take care of it. They know that somebody's really in charge. They're just there for the fun. And sometimes I see that it's similar to that. We believe, we take it too seriously. Like, no, we need to make this church go. I need to work on my sanctification. And yes, it is a serious thing. And yes, but we can also relax. We have, daddy's there. Our father is there. He is working. He is the one that's in charge of the project. He is the one that's in charge of making sure that everything you messed up, he will fix. That is our God. He is not only the author of our faith, he's also the finisher of our faith. He is the one that's letting us play with the nails a little bit and we think it's so serious. But we have a loving God who is sovereign and who allows us to walk with him, to work with him. And sometimes we do get hurt. But understanding God's sovereignty helps us move to obedience. And we will get into this a little more once we uh, dive into Stephen. But one thing that caught my attention about the story of Stephen is that while he was preaching, the council saw him and they saw light. His face shone, 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 excuse my brillo. There is, there is something that God does when we understand that he is in control that allows us to freely serve him, even when it's hard. They left the council, they were beaten, and they still went back to preach every day, everywhere, in houses, in temples, in streets, in towns, and cities. They did not cease to teach and preach that Christ 
was Jesus, that the Christ was Jesus. This is what the book is going to continue to do and show us. Like the understanding of God as a sovereign God moves us to obedience. We have a God who's in charge. We have a God that invites us to join him in his work and he will help us. He is in charge. He is literally building his church. We are playing with the nails of his church. He is going to finish the church. We can rejoice. We can be glad because we have a father who cares for us. And if this is truly his church, we will prevail no matter what. If you're a believer, I want to make sure you understand that God has already given you everything you need. The message of the gospel for us as believers is that we can now live in freedom because Jesus died in our place and forgave our sins. And we can rejoice in the fact that one, of, one day all of these afflictions will disappear and that we can live in eternal joy forever. That our dad is here with us. He loves us. He's working in us. He's working through us. He is carrying us all the way to the end because he loves us, because he gave his son for us. We don't have to earn everything or anything. We now, we have been given everything because of God, because of Jesus, because of the cross. And we can live and work freely to God. So I want to encourage us all as, as believers We can relax. You don't have to be here serving 24-7. Please serve. But you don't have to do it out of, your, out of desperation because if I don't show up, no, if you don't show up, it's going to be fine. In fact, on Saturday, I didn't show up to the men's breakfast and it was the best men's breakfast ever. Maybe I'm the problem. We can rejoice. We're not the people in charge. And the same goes for your family. And the same goes for everything. I'm not arguing for just not doing anything. I'm arguing for a posture of understanding that we can relax because God got us. He is our Father. And if you're not a believer, I want to I tell you that this freedom, this joy, this peace is also available to you. This piece that you don't have to work to earn your salvation. You don't have to be a good moral person to be saved. You don't have to get your act together in order for you to go to heaven. You don't. That is a lie. That is nowhere in the Bible. The Bible says that we're sinners. That you and I are sinners. That we need Jesus. And Jesus has done everything that we need to do. Jesus has done everything for you that you will never be able to do. So if you're not a believer, you don't have to wait. You can just come to him today and repent. And repenting is turning from your old ways and turning to his ways and saying, I'm sorry for trying to do it on my own. I need you. It's recognizing that you are not able, that you can't please God in your own strength. But Jesus did it. Jesus pleased his father. Jesus lived the life that you and I could not live. Jesus died in our place on the cross. He was nailed and crucified to that cross for us. He paid for our sin. His blood now makes us clean. He not only died in our place, he also resurrected in our place. He defeated death because we cannot defeat death. And now if we put our trust in him, if you put your, your trust in him, he can give you eternal life. And he did all of this because he loves 
you so much. Let's all spend some time thinking and pondering that if God is with us, truly, nothing will be ever able to overthrow our church, our lives, anything. We can rest in God's sovereignty. Gamaliel was right. Let's stand up and let's celebrate communion together. Dear God, we thank you for your word. We thank you because you are a wise God who even speaks to us in ways we don't understand or anticipate. I pray today that you will allow us to walk trusting you in peace. I pray that you would allow us to rejoice even in, even in the midst of suffering. Lord, anyone here, all of us here who are struggling with something, I pray that today we would be able to surrender it to you and know that in the real end, we will be all right. That we can rejoice right now because we are putting our eyes on the fact that you're in control and that you're taking us home and we will be all right. Lord, I pray that this supernatural peace and joy would move us to obedience. To move us to obey freely, to share the gospel freely, to serve, serve you freely. Because it doesn't depend on us. We depend on you. Thank you for building your church. Thank you for prospering us. Thank you because all the glory and all the credit is always to you. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.
therefore, and make 